trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Okay, I'm going to admit, I was this close again to uh, not doing the show today. Uh, it, it's uh, it's always such a delicate balancing act when uh, you're, in, you're in a position where you could literally talk yourself out of a job. And my voice is hanging on by a razor's edge, but I just felt like, you know what, there's a lot of important stuff going on today. And I kind of like this part of my day. This is, <laughs> this is relaxing. I like to sit down with you. I, I, you know, I mean... Really? I wish that I could hand you your very own, uh, you know, Brian Hyde Show, Rebel in Wrong Think mug, and we could sit back and, uh, you know, enjoy a warm beverage on this cold, frosty day as we muse about the things going on in our world and, and where it all seems to be leading. So, we'll have to settle for this, <laughs> but I really do appreciate you tuning in. By the way, I want to thank the sponsors who make this possible. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to Ironsight Brewing Company. You can visit their website at ironsightbc.com. This is a subscription coffee service. Not like Starbucks. No, this is this is much better. This is for the true connoisseur. If you're the kind of person who likes to brew your own coffee, how about this? From the roaster to your doorstep in less than 72 hours, and it's just top-shelf stuff. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes at The Brian Hyde Show, where you'll also see sponsors like quiltandso.com, tmcpnation.com, as well as lifesavingfood.com. All right, well, let's, let's dig in here. Um, Barry Brownstein, I shared, a, I shared part one of a two-part essay that he is, is sharing about what allows to totalitarians to succeed. And by the way, spoiler alert, it's ordinary people. It's folks like you and me. Not that we have evil in our hearts, not that we're out there, you know, trying to further the cause of, you know, some nefarious character. Our problem is we don't recognize tyranny for what it is, or if we do recognize it or think we recognize it, we have a tendency to want to lay back, look for that safe moment when everybody around us sees it too. Yeah, 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 I see that. Let's boldly stand up and say no to this. And when you get enough ordinary people stuck in that loop, waiting for that big shock, the one that never comes, that's going to wake everybody up. Well, let's just say by going along with it or by not opposing what's taking place, or at least speaking out against it, we enable it. Sometimes people even go a little bit further, and I'm sorry, there's a lot of good people who this is going to affect, but if you've ever had to rationalize, well, it's my job, it may not be a popular thing to do, or uh, yeah, it kind of feels a little bit uh, shadowy, or maybe it's a little bit unclear whether this is right or wrong, but it's my job. I have a pension on the line, or I have you know, my reputation or my standing among the pillars of society. So it's, it's a test of character. And it's understandable why, why very few people want to be the ones to speak up, because the cost is usually you're going to face some kind of punishment being ostracized, maybe sometimes locked away. The guy who posted the Hillary Clinton memes, right? <laughs> he went to prison for posting memes. So I wanted you to hear part two of Barry's Why Ordinary People Enable Totalitarians, keeping in mind that all this has happened before and it is happening again. So let's learn from, you know, similar civilizations that have had a very similar trajectory. There were people who realized things were going wrong, 
But by the time they spoke up or wanted to speak up, suddenly it was too dangerous to do so. Now, in part one of the essay, Barry says, we explored Sebastian Hafner's insight that Germans who had lost touch with, their innate hu- with the innate human impulse to create and live a meaningful life were the ones most, most likely to become Nazis. Many Nazis, Hafner argued, didn't understand the consequences of their moral failure. Most of them, he wrote, would have been deeply shocked if one had suggested that what they really stood for were torture chambers and officially decreed pogroms. Now, Hitler came to power in 1933 in part by promising, in Hafner's words, everything to everybody, which naturally brought him a vast, loose army of followers and voters from among the ignorant, the disappointed, and the dispossessed. A readiness to forfeit self-reliance and the rule of law in favor of advantages for the few was fertile ground for what followed. I have to just offer this quick aside, too, just because, you know, well, you know, they... They, they were just bad people to start with, or they never would have supported this guy. Look, I think it was Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation who first pointed this out, and I thought this was a very astute observation. One of the reasons why Hitler was able to obtain the power he obtained, which was ultimately unlimited power, ultimately it was, you know, give me all the power I need to fix the problems and I'll do it, was because people were afraid. What were they afraid of? Well, there was this Bolshevik revolution that had been taking place for uh, roughly the last, uh, what, 13 years, 14 years by that time? No, 15 years. Sorry, trying to, trying to get my, my dates straight here. So they were worried about Bolsheviks, yes, literal communists, coming in and doing what they had been doing to Russia. They were also facing economic difficulties. If you remember what the Weimar Republic was going through in terms of, you know, the economic hardship that was imposed through the collapse of its, its money system and the reparations they were required to pay under the Treaty of Versailles. And, of course, there was also the threat of terrorism, in, in this case, the burning of the Reichstag. So you had, like, this triple whammy threat, economic upheaval, a threat from an enemy at the gate, in this case, Bolshevism, and, of course, you know, the idea that uh, our country is under attack. By the way, spoiler alert, it was uh, the people who wanted Hitler in power. In other words, it was his folks who set fire to the Reichstag and then blaming that act of terrorism on, you know, a Dutch communist said that, uh, yes, we will take the necessary steps. The Enabling Act was passed. He became the chancellor and from there, the Fuhrer. And people embraced it because they were afraid. They thought, well, here's this guy. You know, we've been humiliated. Our noses have been rubbed in it. And, you know, this is not to justify anything that he did. You understand that. But I'm looking at the human nature behind why did so many people get behind him? Well, because he restored their place. They're standing among the other nations. In fact, there's, there's a quote from Winston Churchill. This was, I think, uh, after uh, Time magazine made Hitler its man of the year in, what was it, 1938. And uh, Churchill said something like, should Britain ever find itself in a similar situation to Germany, I would hope that we would have our own Hitler to restore us to our rightful place among the nations. Yeah, a lot of hindsight. You don't see that quote very often, but he actually said it. So, keeping in mind, when Hitler issued authoritarian or totalitarian directives, you know, after coming to power, Hafner was stunned. What became of the Germans? I mean, it it was actually a majority that voted against him, but enough went along. How was it possible there was not the slightest visible reaction from the majority? And, of course, the obvious explanation was fear, but Hafner's insights went deeper. Barry Brownstein says he recognized a common mindset among Germans not to do anything that could derail his life, something audacious or out of the ordinary. 
I'm going to put that in another way. I'll just restate that. They were comfortable with what they had, and they didn't want to risk losing it. I guess what would be the Weimar Republic of, you know, equivalent of being canceled. They didn't want that. That scared them. Now, the point here is Barry says we see the same self-protecting behavior in today's America. Every day, new examples arise, but he says, Today I read of Dr. Mike Joyner being disciplined by the Mayo Clinic for his willingness to write about the advantage testosterone gives born male athletes. Now, doubtless, many of Dr. Joyner's colleagues understand or respect his position, but they stay silent out of fear for their careers. Now, it's unclear from Hafner's manuscript if he was aware of Jung or Freud's ideas on projection. Those who live life without meaning inevitably project onto others the shame and guilt for their own poor choices. Stop for a moment and think, where do we see that today? Attack doesn't necessarily or even typically mean a physical attack. To mindlessly project onto others everything one hates about oneself is a form of attack. Seeing others as objects of disgust is a form of attack. State-sanctioned hate is a mechanism authoritarians use to prey upon minds conditioned to attack. Hafner recounted the rise of state-sanctioned hate. In 1933, he was a referendar, that's a lawyer in trading, training rather, for the Kammergericht, I hope I'm saying that correctly, the Supreme Court of Berlin. Shortly after the Nazi government organized boycotts of Jewish stores, Jewish attorneys became a target. One day, Hafner heard a clatter of footsteps outside in the corridor, the sound of rough boots on the stairs, and then a distinct, a distant, rather indistinct din, shouts, doors banging. Like a scene from many movies, the SA, which was the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, had arrived. Now, Hafner was in the law library and heard one of his colleagues say, they're throwing out the Jews. Others began to laugh. Hafner, who was not a Jew, wrote, at that moment, this laughter alarmed me more than what was actually happening. With a start, I realized that there were Nazis working in this room. It disoriented Hafner to realize among his colleagues were anti-Semites who now felt free to share their hate. Now, i got to tap the brakes on this because we're coming up fast on our own uh, break here. But this is a tough thing I'm asking. Put yourself in the shoes of those who were laughing. You ever take joy in watching somebody crushed by the cancel culture crowd? Okay, you might want to rethink some of your own motives. I mean, this is human nature. We're all prone to it. Hey, I like to see, you know, karma come around and bite somebody good and hard too, but... At what point do we stop seeing others as human and see them as contemptible beneath, you know, even even having the basic human values? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Continuing on with our discussion of uh, Barry Brownstein's uh, Why Ordinary People Enable Totalitarians. I know that in our minds we think, well, I never would have been dumb enough to fall for any of that Nazi propaganda. And if I had seen, you know, what was going on, I would have clearly recognized it and abstained from it and most likely called people out. No, you wouldn't. And the reason you wouldn't have is the same reason that the majority of people didn't stand up and say, hey, you know, slavery is wrong and you know, I don't think it's very Christian of us to go around trying to own other people and force them to work for us and, you know, take the, the product of their labor. Why didn't they do it? Because it was socially acceptable. More people accepted it and it was advantageous to keep your mouth shut or you might uh, run the risk of, you know, getting corrected by somebody else. So 
Here was Hafner in the law library as they started to throw the Nazis out from the Berlin Supreme Court. And his, uh, some of his uh, co-workers and colleagues were laughing about it. And he realized, oh my gosh, some of my colleagues are anti-Semites and now they feel free to share their hate. Ah, now that I know you guys are cool, <laughs> yeah, I can have a laugh too. Now later, an SA man approached Hafner's desk and asked him, are you, an Ar- are you Aryan? Hafner disclosed before I had a chance to think. I said, yes. And then a moment too late, he says, I felt the shame, the defeat. What a humiliation to have answered the unjustified question as to whether I was Aryan so easily. I had failed my very first test. I could have slapped myself. Now, Barry Brownstein says, as I read Hafner's testimony, I realized that were I in his shoes, I would have behaved in the same way. I understood at the deeper level that the best safeguard of liberty is societal support for a system that prevents abuses of power before individual acts of heroism are necessary. When maintaining liberty requires resisting the threat of violence, it's probably too late. Out in the park with his girlfriend, Hafner discerned that the mind virus of anti-Semitism had infected the country. It was a day for school outings, and as as each group of fresh-faced adolescents accompanied and supervised by their teachers passed, they shouted, Judah Werk! Parish jewelry to us in their bright young voices, as though it was some sort of, sort of hiker's greeting. This reminds me, by the way, of a, of a passage from Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 1945. Some of the people he interviewed saw what was going on, but really didn't feel, you know, like they were that connected to it. Oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the Nazis for you, the same way we would say, ah, oh, that's the Democrats, and that's the Republicans, or... Thought that frisbee-throwing, pot-smoking libertarian wing there. But he said one of the people that he interviewed, I think it was a professor, said what stopped him in his tracks was the day that he was walking down the street with his five-year-old son, and they passed someone who I believe was was wearing the armband denoting that they were a Jew, so they had their you know yellow five or yellow uh, star, six-sided star on their arm, the star David, and the little boy sneered, Jewish swine. And apparently this professor was just like, whoa, stopped in his tracks. What would make a five-year-old talk like that? That's when he realized we have, uh, we've gone over the threshold here. And the problem with that is by then it was, it was getting very difficult to speak up. In fact, it was Milton Meyer who points out this is when people were waiting. Okay, I can see this isn't quite right, but I don't dare be the first one to stand up. As soon as this big shock comes and people go, they're doing what? Oh, man, we can't back that. But it never came. And by the time most people could see with their own eyes or perhaps smell in the smoke in the air that, oh, my gosh, they're burning human remains. That's when it was too dangerous to say something. Barry Brownstein says, in a significant contribution to our understanding of state, state-sanctioned state hatred, Hafner explored the mind trick that the Nazis used not only against the Jews, but against other nations and groups. The Nazis turned their hate around by provoking conversations, not about their hate, but about the Jewish question. Hafner wrote, by publicly threatening a person, an ethnic group, a nation, or a region with death and destruction, they provoke a general discussion, not about their own existence, but about, the, but about the right of their victims to exist, Hafner reported. Suddenly, everyone felt justified. This is Hafner. And indeed required to have an opinion about Jews and to state it publicly. Distinctions were made between decent Jews and the others. 
If some pointed to the achievements of Jewish scientists or artists and doctors to justify the Jews, justify? For what? Against what? Others would counter that they were a detrimental foreign influence in these spheres. Now, Barry Brownstein says presaging today's identity politics, which demands equalities of outcome. Hafner wrote, Indeed, it soon became customary to count it against the Jews if they had a respectable or intellectually valuable profession. This was treated as a crime, or at the very least, a lack of tact. The defenders of the Jews were frowningly told that it was reprehensible of the Jews to have such and such a percentage of doctors, lawyers, journalists, etc. Indeed, percentage calculations were a popular ingredient of the Jewish question. Then Hafner clearly explained why Nazism, and indeed all tribalism, is an essential, an existential rather threat to humanity. He reasoned Nazi anti-Semitism had nothing to do with the virtues or vices of the Jews. To Hafner, the justifications of the Nazis that the Nazis gave rather for their programs against the Jews were utter nonsense, and thus not the real horror. What Hafner recognized was that the Nazis were the first in history to deny humans the solidarity of every species that enables it to survive, to turn human predatory instincts that are normally directed against other animals against members of their own species and to make a whole nation into a pack of hunting hounds. I'm sorry, that kind of gives me chills because it sounds a lot like some of the conditioning we're seeing today. Not for Jews necessarily, but, well, everybody who isn't towing the left-wing line. Chillingly, Hafner foresaw that once this appeal to the worst in human nature is awakened and even made into a duty, it is a simple matter to change the subject. That can be seen clearly today. Instead of Jews, one could just as easily say Czechs or Poles or anyone else. Hafner explained why civilization was on the line, saying, here we have the systematic infection of the whole nation, Germany, with a germ that causes its people to treat their victims like wolves, or to put it differently, the freeing and revitalization of precisely those those sadistic instincts whose chaining and restraint has been the work of a thousand years of civilization. Thus, Hafner warned, should the, core, should the central core of the Nazis' program become a reality, it would amount to a major crisis for humanity and would place the survival of the species, Homo sapiens, at risk. Well, the Nazi program became a reality, but humanity survived. With the social justice religion of group identities ascending, is humanity again at risk? Now, that may rub some people the wrong way. Is he saying that uh, these uh, social justice uh, identity politics folks are somehow... In league with the Nazis? Yes, in the sense that they are both practicing a very ugly form of collectivism. So they may not be goose-stepping or have as great a fashion designer as, you know, uh, as Hitler and, and his people had, but it's the same dynamic. Everybody is divided up and they're worth assigned according to what group they are a part of or they are identified with, rather than just honoring the individual rights of each person. In an 1829 journal entry, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, Imagine hope to be removed from the human race and see how society will sink, how the strong bands of order and improvement will be relaxed, and what a death-like stillness would take the place of the restless energies that now move the world. Hafner had hoped his country would awaken, but history instructs how the actions of human beings can create unimaginable human suffering. To prevent the worst, Barry says, we must learn history's lessons. Man. I think the hardest thing for for us, I'm speaking primarily for myself, is to avoid falling into that trap 
of, of allowing ourselves to be led into believing, well, that, uh, that group or that person or, you know, that movement is so despicable, they don't deserve any protection whatsoever. You can advocate for the human rights or the humanity of anybody. Even, you know, I'm going to use this as an example because I think this is one of the more despicable things. The, uh, the guy in lingerie reading saucy stories or sexy stories to little kids. Yeah, I think that's disgusting, deviant behavior. And I think it has a very evil purpose to break little minds or at least bend them in the wrong direction. At the same time, that person who is reading that book to the kids, confused though they may be, is still a son of God or daughter of God, depending on which way they swing. And they deserve at least the, the protection that any of us deserves from government predation. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, those first couple of segments a little bit heavy, right? But again, this is not about, hey, I want everybody to write in and tell me how much you hate Nazis too. I see this kind of behavior sometimes, and to me, it is it is the ultimate of the virtue signaling of, you know, I'm going to take a very bold and brave stand against slavery or racism or some other thing that largely has been solved. In fact, the slavery question, well, that was solved, <laughs> solved by other people in another time. But still, you have people who bravely stand up. I just want to say categorically that this is wrong. The problem is when you get people who say, and now you must say it as well, or you are subject to, you know, harassment or pressure or maybe some kind of sanction. Case in point, there is a group in my home state of Idaho right now uh, called Idaho Leaders United. It's Power Seekers and Opportunists United. In other words, this is a group of has-been politicians, some business leaders, but these are people who are very addicted to the idea that, hey, we're very important and other people should listen to what we do. In fact, what we think is so important, it should be policy. And so they bravely denounce anything that anybody else, if there's an accusation, what, somebody's guilty of thought crime? Well, they'll step up. We cannot tolerate this, and we want everybody to sign our pledge, and we want everybody to to step up and, and emphatically and collectively, by the way, that's the word they use, collectively join their voice with ours in denouncing this or denouncing that. I think they, they do win the award this year for the, uh, you know, blowers of hot air. <laughs> they, are, they are just insufferable. And the crazy thing about this, and I'm sorry, it sounds like you're really talking down about these folks. Well, they think they're brave. They think that this is a bold, stunning thing. Oh, look at how brave they are to stand up against, uh, what is it today? Anti-Semitism today. Look, there are people out there who hold unpopular and even incorrect ideas. As long as their behavior is peaceful, and by the way, we, we have outlawed virtually every physical form of discrimination that a person can engage in. So let's not pretend like, oh, it's rampant, man. They're already forcing people to wear the armband and they're breaking their store windows and making them hang signs. No, they're not. Some people are accused of holding unpopular opinions. So what? If their behavior is peaceful, they are entitled to think what they want to think. And if you disagree with that, or if you feel like, well, I need to step up and I need to correct it, I want you to walk over and look in a mirror and recognize you are the problem. 
The world does not need you to correct everybody's thinking. And it just makes me laugh to see groups that will step up and, well, look at us. We found a parade and now we're marching in front of it. Oh, aren't we brave? Aren't we stunning? I'm sorry. I just, uh, they actually think they're doing something and they think we are so respectable. We are such, such examples of rectitude for people. They're fools. And they don't care about people that they step on. They don't care about people that they smear. They just want to be seen as, look at us, we are with, you know, whatever the the prevailing opinion of the moment or the fad of the moment happens to be. What What a sick place to be. And that brings us to this topic. Why are lies so believable? Because they've clearly bought into some lies. This is an article from the Brownstone Institute. Russ Gonnering is the author. And he starts with a quote from Groucho Marx. Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? This is from the 1933 classic Duck Soup. After uh, Groucho Marx left the room, Chico Marx impersonating Groucho exclaims to Margaret Dumont, which when she states she had left, when she states he had left the room, he's the one who gives this immortal line. Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Now, it's been slightly modified through the years, but it remains part of legend. During the past few years, we've been subjected to pretty much the same line multiple times. And the surprising thing is that in many cases, we believe the lie instead of what we clearly see. Now, we'll, we'll use the instance of COVID. COVID originated in a wet market. That was the official line. Was it true? Nope. There's nothing you can do, just social distance. Sicken at home until you can't breathe, then come to the hospital and be put on remdesivir and a ventilator. Which, by the way, killed a lot of the people. It was the ventilator and the remdesivir that killed the people, not COVID. Churches and schools must be closed, but liquor stores, oh, and dispensaries in those states where it was legal, must remain open. Masks work. Wear two of them. Wear them outside and while alone in the car. The vaccine is safe and effective. That's probably my favorite. Disagreeing with Fauci is an attack of science itself. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are useless, but this hasn't been confined just to COVID. In fact, he says these assertions have also made the rounds. Similar statements are actually increasing. So uh, here's, a, here's an example of some other lies that are so believable. Defunding the police will make you safer. Climate change is an existential threat and more dangerous than nuclear war. Science is settled. White supremacists and Christian fundamentalists are more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. Silence is violence. Israel was ultimately responsible for the massacre of Jews on October 7th, 2023. How about this? There were no Jews in Israel before 1948, or being against anti-Semitism is always for Islamophobia, being for Islamophobia. Advocating genocide is not always wrong. It depends on the context. Or diversity, equity, and inclusion should be mandated as it is fair. The fact that it really is orthodoxy, inequality, and exclusion is false. Here's a couple more. Those who have a different opinion on anything the government says are guilty of misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation, whatever that is. The January 6th insurrection was worse than Pearl Harbor. The Hunter Biden laptop was just Russian propaganda. This administration is the most transparent in history. Okay, here's one more. The border is secure. All these assertions are at least open to questioning, yet to question them is to be considered anathema by the current powers that be. Why? 
Why can these assertions not be open to discussion? Well, the answer is found in the definition of truth. 2,000 years ago, a certain Roman procurator asked a prisoner in Jerusalem, truth, what is truth? Many consider truth to be an absolute binary quality, such as it is either raining here or not raining. Someone either robbed the bank or they did not. A senator either voted for a bill or they did not. But is it really that simple? Is the truth rooted in facts? Joe Biden doesn't think so. In, an, in August 2019, at a rare campaign event in Des Moines, he famously said, we choose truth over facts. <laughs> what a great Bidenism. This was explained away as one of the numerous gaffes for which Joe is famous. He meant to say, we choose truth over lies, but maybe this was one of those rare instances in which a politician actually tells the truth. Is truth just determined by ideology? The concept of truth in the postmodern world has become malleable. There is not the truth, but my truth, which may not be the same as your truth. It depends, as Bill Clinton famously said, it all depends on what the meaning of is, is. Truth has become more or less a preference. Sort of like you may like chocolate, I like vanilla, you like a Chevy, well, I like a Ford. When we ask which is the better car, we can both truthfully say what we think. And so he asks, has the meaning of truth just evaporated or is something more at work? John Leake may have hit on an answer. In his December 8th, 2023 post, Faith Immune to Facts, he relates a Boston Globe interview with recent Nobel laureates Drew Weissman and Caitlin Carrico in which they proclaim their faith in the COVID vaccines. Mr. Leake puts it this way, Philosophers and anthropologists have long observed that humans seem to be inherently religious in nature. Thus, if people are no longer, no longer believe in the God of Judaism or Christianity, they are left in a spiritual vacuum in which they feel an implacable yearning to believe in something else. Many of the social and political movements that are now afoot in America and Europe strike me as an expression of fervent religious energy. Ooh, I don't disagree with him one bit. Now, this seems to be supported by Christopher Rufo's December 10th, 2023 substack exposing the plagiarism of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. In discussing this with, Fox, with Fox's Jesse Waters on December 12th, 2023, Rufo remarked that it's ironic that an academic institution, the motto of which is veritas, or truth, seems singularly uninterested in its pursuit. So the title of this essay is a question that needs to be discussed. Why are lies so believable? Well, I'd like to take a quick stab at that, if I could. I think lies are believable because we want to believe what we want to believe. Look, I prefer things that sound soft and sweet in my ears and that, that actually make me feel like, you know what, everything is cool. We're all good. We're good. You know, there's some tough stuff going on out there, but overall, there's nothing so wrong that uh, we can't just sleep on it and, you know, have a, have a good uh, breakfast and, you know, get right back to normal in no time. But we know better than that. And, and it's not to say we need to be wallowing in, oh, everything sucks and I'm so aware of it. It's just sometimes when you see something that is untruthful or you question, wow, does that really add up? You know, a lot of people will hop right on the bandwagon. Oh, that sounds attractive to me. Bam, I'm on there and I'm going to be, you know, waving the flag and chanting in unison with everybody else. I think it's a really good idea to take a deep breath. In fact, step back and allow yourself some time to think about what is going on. Why would that be a bad idea? How many times have you seen people jump on the bandwagon hurrying to get the story out there? Oh, I broke it first. I got it out there on social media. Only to have to walk it back later. Well, it turns out that wasn't true or that was just a hoax. That's embarrassing. And it also undermines your credibility, which it turns out it takes a while to establish. Don't throw it all away just because it 
Feels good. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, we made it to the final segment. Knock on wood. I can make this last, my voice, that is, for another few minutes. Uh, By the way, next week, I'm going to be a little bit spotty. I will be doing a version of the show, but it is not going to be, uh, it's not going to be the full hour. So um, I I will apologize in advance, but I'm going to be using my voice four hours a day, filling in for my friend Bill Colley. And that is... uh, it's well. Bill has pretty big shoes to fill in the first place, so that's that's a big deal. But it's uh, this is live radio, and so you know, not talking is not an option. But I'm excited. It's always fun to get back into the studio and out of my home studio and into the real world, where it turns out, you know, things are still fairly normal looking. All right, couple quick articles I want to point your attention to. Um, one is this is a really great one from Alan Lash. I picked this one up off intellectualtakeout.org. This was actually published back in March of this year. Can we still trust the doctor? Now, I'm not trying to, to bag on people in the medical field, but this is a pretty good article in the sense that uh, there was a time whenever we entered the hospital where it would be with the utmost sense of respect and reverence. My dad was a pharmacist, and I remember, uh, you know, that uh, one time somebody had come into his drugstore and said something along the lines of, hey, I was looking at this poll that was taken, and it was asking, who is most trustworthy among, you know, the various professions? And it was funny, used car salesmen, you know, <laughs> clear down here, the politicians, I think, was still pretty low on the list. Lawyers, pretty low on the list. Doctors and pharmacists, though, were up there. They were actually above clergy, believe it or not. So the point is, there was a time where we really respected, you know, that, wow, we'd go in and look at the technology, the expertise, everything that was required to the betterment of humanity. And whatever the opinion, whatever the diagnosis, people tended to follow the doctor's advice and prescription to the letter. Doctors and nurses were trusted sometimes with our lives. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that sometimes they didn't get things wrong. Case in point, when I was, I guess, about uh, 10 years old, I remember coming home from school one day, and uh, there was my dad, having just lost his job. And uh, part of the reason he lost his job was he was told, well, you're taking too many sick days, and, and you're, you're, you're a hypochondriac. And he was complaining about some kind of pain that, uh, that uh, he, he was really struggling with. And uh, it turns out, he went to see his doctor, he went to see a urologist, and nope, you're, this is all in your head, it's, I can't see anything, there's nothing going on. So flash forward... Not quite a year, I believe. That was in September of 1976. It was in uh, July or August of 1977 that uh, my dad finally had such such a bout of pain. He actually drove off the road. He actually crashed his car um, because he passed out from the pain. And that time when he went in to see the doctor, they did some exploratory work. Actually, I think it was an x-ray that they did, and they realized he had bladder cancer. I mean, a tumor the size of a man's fist growing in his bladder. And it was very advanced, and fortunately they caught it, and he had 12 more years of life. But his doctor was extremely apologetic because he had missed it, and he had tried to tell him, I'm sorry, I think this is all in your head. So, point being, 
we still respected that doctor. We still thought, oh, he's a, you know, he's a great guy. And ultimately he did, you know, end up saving my dad's life because he was his surgeon and, and removed the tumor. Now, going back to this article from Alan Lash, he talks about how his parents felt the same way. You trust the doctor, you trust the nurses, but you didn't treat all professional activities with the same regard. For instance, his dad depended on car mechanics at times, but he was grudgingly dependent upon them, always suspicious that the diagnosis was incorrect and that his own personal research into the issue was warranted before he accepted the conclusion. He says, we had several shop manuals on our shelves in the garage. Likewise, building contractors were treated with some suspicion. Do-it-yourself was always presented as a valid option, but question a doctor, never. Alan Lash says, being healthy in my 20s, I didn't make a trip to the hospital in the 80s. So it wasn't until the late 90s that my awareness in medicine re-emerged. His aging father suffered a heart attack, and being overweight with high blood pressure, he was prescribed multiple medications. He trusted the doctor and dutifully took his pills as instructed. On a few occasions, he had a couple of his medications pulled for newly discovered side effects, and they were quickly replaced with others. Now, that was only mildly concerning, but then in the 2000s, we started hearing about the failure of many pharmaceutical drugs, some catastrophically so. Now, you can see where suddenly it starts to undermine that, that faith a little bit. Doctors seemingly trusted the pharmaceutical companies, and we trusted doctors. Yet millions of people suffered, and many died as a result. So the question is, did the doctors question the pharmaceutical products before prescribing them to their patients? Alan Lash says, I'm sure many did, but unfortunately it seems many more did not. He says his father died ultimately in 2010 from his third heart attack. The surgical stents clearly prolonged his life, but did the medications prolong his life? Well, that's not clear. So he says, fast forward to today, I went in for a checkup in the fall and the nurse asked me if I was interested in a COVID vaccination. If I had any questions, I was to ask the doctor when he arrived. So I did. I asked somewhat searchingly, what are your feelings about the vaccine with all that's happened and what we found out in the past year? Well, he responded with a straight face. From all the medical research papers I've read, the vaccines are safe and effective. Alan Lash says, I sat in dumbfounded silence. At a bare minimum, he should know, at least, not to use that phrase. Why again are we wearing masks when we're in the doctor's office? They don't work. And then there are the endless emails from my healthcare provider promoting the vaccine for everyone, adults, children, compromised or not, comorbidities or not. There is no reference to any potential qualifiers. Everyone should get it. Have they not been paying attention? And he says, this is where my head is at. In the last 10 years, healthcare expenses have risen dramatically, almost tripling. Yet, yes, the health of my family is the most important thing to me, but now I question the advice that I'm getting. Like my dad with the car mechanics, now every time I get advice or a prescription from the doctor, I have to look it up myself. This goes beyond a second opinion, and it goes beyond what's even possible in the case of car problems or construction problems. For those problems, if I'm moderately lucky, I'll find someone on the internet who made that repair and follow their advice. Prescription drugs? Well, that's not so easy. The information's there on the internet, but it's often contradictory, and sometimes nothing matches what your doctor said. Then, there's the sheer magnitude of prescription drugs available. Do it yourself? Yeah, that's not possible. Trust the government to police the pharmaceutical companies? Impossible. We've seen the incest there. So he says there's only one solution. It's the same answer as it was for my father. Trust your doctor. A simple message to doctors and nurses, he says, our lives are better when we trust you, but right now, 
Many of us are hesitant. We've been burned by the COVID nonsense in the last three years. Our loved ones have suffered. and We don't see common sense from the medical establishment. Many of you stood up in the past three years putting your careers on the line for the truth and the health of your patients. Thank you. Many of you have laid low, promoted your medical organization's message, even if you had misgivings. Maybe you trusted the government and Big Pharma too much. Here's what we need from you. Critical regard for pharmaceutical products. You can't just accept the word of the company hawking the product or the FDA, especially with the revolving door between the FDA and many of these drug companies. We also need clear and open communication with your patients. If you don't know something, say so. If you don't trust something, say it louder. We need critical regard for your own medical organization. We all know they have a message they want to promote. You must separate yourself to retain medical integrity. And finally, above all, treat your patient as an individual. There are no general treatments the same for everyone. Each person is unique, and it depends on you, and depends on you, rather, for singular, focused treatment. And again, he reiterates, all our lives are better if we can trust our doctors. That one really, I thought, was, was thought-provoking. I'm surprised I, I missed it the first time around. Two other quick articles. Will 2024 be our 1776? <laughs> There's a lot of speculation, especially with some of the Hollywood movies coming out. Uh, the political and cultural battles we're experiencing are likely to come to a head. What are you doing to develop an indomitable spirit? If you're not working on it, you really should be. I know it's kind of an indelicate way to say this, but in the words of Boston Tea Party, if you wait until the moment of truth to try to decide which way you're going to go, it's going to be too late to grow a penis later. Sorry, I know that's indelicate, but it, it it's a good way of saying it. And finally, article of the day from Tom Luongo. Love this guy's analysis. You can always count on him for an informed as well as insightful take on current events. His latest column on how the U.S. government is running on empty actually should give all of us a renewed sense of optimism. Not from the sense that, yeah, everything is just going to be easy, smooth sailing from here on out. It's not. But the good news is, if our government is running on empty, then a lot of the nonsense that it has been forcing on us, not just for the last three years, but actually for, for generations, is going to have to come to a stop. Is it going to be a bumpy ride? Absolutely. Is it going to be painful? Probably. But if you understand the principles and practices of freedom, and if you have that indomitable spirit, we're going to be okay, even if we are the ones who have to help build whatever comes next. This is The Brian Hyde Show.